Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Um, I don't know if I've ever told this story in, in church. Maybe I, to- I told it a while back, but um, back when I was in my mid-20s, when I was a youth pastor, I had a friend that was a youth pastor as well. We were both, and he was a little bit younger than me. I was probably 20 seven at the time, 28. He was probably about 25. And we became good friends. We went to seminary together. His name was Shane. He was from Wyoming. Shane and Shane, yeah. And um, we had done some some youth pastor stuff together. And um, in seminary, we got to be pretty good friends. And uh, he was single at the time. And he met a young woman. And he got married to this nice young lady. And she got pregnant and had a child, and so they had, I think, I think they had a six-month-old daughter. And so he's in his late 20s. He's up in seminary. He's about ready to graduate to become a pastor. And they're driving on I-80 in Wyoming, and they get hit by a semi, and he gets killed, and the baby gets killed. Oh, and so he's, she's left with, and they'd only been married maybe about a year and a half. The baby's six months old. And so um, she was devastated, obviously, as you can imagine, as a young mom, as a young mom who's lost her husband, lost her baby. Um, so my wife had a chance to kind of minister to her and talk to her about how she struggled with that. And so it brings up a question that we're going to kind of look at tonight, and that is, you know, how do you, how do you handle situations like that in life? When here you have a guy that seems like he's at the top of his game, he's in his late 20s, he's married, has a young daughter, he's going to be a pastor. You would think that if there's anybody that deserves to live a long life, it would be somebody like that. Why was his life taken and his babies taken, and yet some pornographer over here lives to be 90 years old and never gets caught and pretty much does whatever he wants? And so that's what we're going to study tonight. And so here's what this passage of Scripture is teaching us. Remember last week, last week was how do we suffer? How do we suffer? And what was the answer? We rejoice during times of suffering. He kind of piggybacks on that theme tonight. But here's, it's a little bit of different, it's a different, but it's similar. Um, here's, here's the real point of tonight's passage of Scripture. Since we cannot understand the perplexities of this life, we can become tempted to, number one, try really hard to obligate God to bless us by being righteous, or number two, we can give up on pursuing holiness and fall into major sin. And I'm going to explain what I mean by those two ditches that we're tempted to fall into when we can't quite understand these perplexities in life. So let's read together Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. So we looked at the first half of the, ver- of the, of the chapter last week. Here's the second half, Ecclesiastes 7, 15-29. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why would you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? 
It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that's madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. All right, it's a difficult passage of Scripture. And so, in light of perplexities in life, he asks a very perplexing question here in the first part. So, part 1, verses 15 through 17, a very perplexing question. What is his question there in verse 15? In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Here's the question that he asks. Why does a good, righteous person die young, like my friend Shane that got killed in a car wreck with his young daughter, and yet a wicked man prospers and lives a long life with no punishment? It's a question. Why do sometimes people who are righteous, people who are good, people who are upright, how come they die young, their life is snuffed out, it seems unfair, and yet somebody who's wicked just gets to live as long as they want, and it seems like they never get punished. But is life a reward? And here's the point. That's the question, and he's going to answer that. Yeah, so, no, you're, you're, you're on the right track. He's looking at this, and he's puzzled by it. Because here's what the Israelites believed. Israelites believed that automatically, if you obeyed God, you would live a long, good life. Remember one of the Ten Commandments that had a, came with the promise, Exodus twenty twelve. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord has given you. Didn't Paul say this is the one commandment that comes with the promise? If you honor your father and mother, you will live a long life. Deuteronomy five thirty three. You shall walk in all the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Now, as a general principle, is not that true? If you obey God, generally, not always, but generally, is there blessing for doing the right thing? Yes. But are we ever guaranteed that if we do everything right, nothing bad's ever going to happen to us? Okay? Let me give you some examples in the Bible, three examples, of a righteous person 
that died at the hands of the wicked and their life was pretty much snuffed out early. They didn't get to live a long, full life. We can think about right off the bat, Abel. What do we know about Abel? In Genesis 4, 8 through 9, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Abel was righteous, was he not? He brought the appropriate sacrifice. God looked with favor on his sacrifice and didn't look with favor on Cain's. So if anything, we'd be thinking, fairness here, who deserves to live long? Abel. But Cain is the one that killed him. And not that Cain got away with it, but it seems like it would be like, it's not fair that Abel would be killed. It seems like Cain should be the one to suffer. Okay, another person that was righteous was Naboth. I don't know if you guys remember the story of Naboth. He had a vineyard next to the king's palace. And King Ahab, the wicked king, said, come and sell me your inheritance and sell me your... Basically tried to bully him into selling his land. And Naboth said, no, this is the only thing I've got. This is my inheritance. I'm not going to do that. In 1 Kings 21, 1-4, Now Nabite the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. He got really upset. That guy wouldn't sell me his land. So you guys know who Ahab's wife is? Jezebel. Jezebel. What is Jezebel? Jezebel concocts a plan. And basically she has this plan. She says, listen, Naboth. I mean, she says, listen, Ahab, don't worry about it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to make Naboth feel like he's important. So we're going to invite him to a big banquet and we'll let him sit at the head table. But this is all a setup because what's going to happen is we're going to hire two worthless men to come in and accuse him of wrongdoing and make him look stupid in front of everybody. And then he'll look like he's committed a crime and then we'll have cause to kill him. And then you'll get the vineyard. And that's exactly what happened. In 1 Kings 21.13, the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. He did nothing wrong. He was righteous. He got killed by the hands of wicked men for being righteous. What about Stephen, the young deacon? We don't really know how old he is, but we we assume he's probably fairly young. Um, He's standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. Verses 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth in him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, later to become Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So 
from a human perspective, when we just even look at these three examples in the Bible, you have three righteous men, Abel, Naboth, and Stephen, who did righteous things. They did godly things. They, did not, they weren't evil, wicked, perverse people, but they were victims of injustice. They were killed by wicked people. Cain was wicked. Jezebel was wicked. The Sanhedrin was wicked. And so you may ask and say, this is a travesty of justice. It would seem like yin-yang, right? You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. What goes around comes around. It's like karma. It seems like that's the way the universe would operate. But is that the way the universe operates? No. And the psalmist struggled with it too. The psalmist said in Psalm 73, 12-14, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's saying, listen, it doesn't even pay. It's not worth it for me to be good because the wicked just keep getting richer and richer and they don't have any issues that they have to deal with or consequences. Let me give you guys some church history. Three men in church history I was trying to think about who were righteous, godly men who died early. Uh, the first one's David Brainerd. Anybody know who David Brainerd is? Everybody, anybody heard of him? Okay. Um, he was born in 1718 in Connecticut. He struggled with tuberculosis his entire life. He graduated from Yale at the top of his class. He battled depression. But he was also a missionary to the Indians during the time of Jonathan Edwards. As a matter of fact, he ended up at the age of 29 marrying Jonathan Edwards' 18-year-old daughter. And so on his 25th birthday, he basically fasted and prayed the entire day in loneliness because he never saw any conversions. And he died a very young man out there serving the Indians with really not a lot of converts of tuberculosis. And we would look at that and say, wouldn't God want to reward him for going and being a missionary? Wouldn't you think that God would reward him by giving him a long life because he went and, and served the missionary or served as a missionary? Sometimes we think that, don't we? God must owe me something because I'm doing his work. Or Robert Murray McShane, he was a Scottish preacher. During the 1800s, he died at the age of 29. Um, the McShurry, McShurry, the McShane, the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan that we sometimes use as a church was named after him. He was also um, a pastor, but he took a bunch of mission trips during that time to Palestine to minister to the Jews. He died at the age of 29. William Borden, I don't know if you know the story of William Borden. I've told this story before. He, you guys know the Borden dairy, the, little, the, the cow on, on the side of the milk? Borden, so in 1904, he was to inherit the whole Borden Dairy empire to become a millionaire as a young man. And as a, as a gift, his parents sent him on a cruise around the world. And as he's cruising around the world, he begins to get a heart for the nations. He begins to get a heart for lost people. And so he comes back to his family and says, I don't want to inherit the money. I don't want to inherit the business. I don't want to inherit the dairy. I want to be a missionary. And they said, you're crazy, you're a lunatic, you're giving up this fortune to go serve, don't do it. And so he goes to Yale, he goes to seminary, he gives up his inheritance, and he wants to reach China. He really has a heart for Muslims in China. On his way 
to China, he stops in Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, he contracts meningitis. And he dies before he even gets on the mission field. And so you've got examples of these godly, missionary-minded people in the Bible, also in, in church history, who, for some strange reason, died young, never got to live a long life, and yet you have these wicked people that live long lives and do wicked things and, and seem to be getting away with stuff and they never suffer. So this is the situation Solomon's looking at. He's like, I've, I'm looking at this and it is bothering me. But what he does here is he says, when you look at this, you're tempted to fall into two ditches. He gives two ditches that we are tempted to fall into. What's ditch number one? Well, notice what he says there. And this sounds really weird when you read it because you're like, is this in the Bible? Look at verse 16. Be not overly righteous. What? And do not make yourself too wise. Do not be overly righteous. Now, what's he saying here? Is he saying don't be righteous? Is there like too righteous that you can become that's not good? What's he saying here? Here's, Here's the ditch he's talking about. Ditch number one. I must try really hard to be super righteous so that God is obligated to bless me with a long and prosperous life. God owes me this, so I must work hard to prove my worth. This is the ditch of legalism. If I just do more for God, then He's obligated to bless me and give me a long life. Is that a ditch? Is God obligated to do that? Can you somehow get brownie points with God being really, really good to where you, you get merit to where, okay, you've reached this level and now God, you know, God's not going to take it away from you. He's got to bless you. You're basically living a life saying, I'm working hard to keep God in my good graces so that he's obligated to bless me. That's legalism. That's the ditch. So when he's saying don't be overly righteous, that's what he's talking about there. Now what's ditch number two? Ditch number two is just the opposite. What does he say there in verse 17? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Ditch number two. It's useless to pursue righteousness because the wicked are having way much more fun and never suffering the consequences. I'll just give up on holiness and give in to major sin. This is the ditch of license. See the two ditches? One is, I better work really hard to get God to bless me. The other one is, it doesn't even matter what I do because I'm just going to... I mean, if this is the way, if this is the way it works, if this, is, if this is, it doesn't pay to be holy because everybody else is not being holy and getting away with murder, I might as well join them and just give in to sin. Both of those ditches are wrong. Now, he's not condemning righteousness. He's not going out and saying, don't pursue righteousness or holiness Because Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So yes, we must pursue holiness and grow in godliness, but we must understand the motivation behind why we do it. Key word, why do we serve God Why do we pursue holiness? Why do we grow in godliness? What's the motivation? See, you can have a wrong motivation for wanting to serve God. And you can have a right motivation. So 
Here's the question. Do we pursue holiness in order to get God to bless us more as if he's obligated to succumb to our demands? Is that the motivation to serve God? I'm going to serve God so that I get him to bless me. Okay, that's wrong motivation. Or do we pursue holiness as a result of salvation and out of thankfulness and joy because we want to please God for His gracious gift of mercy. Which is the better motivation? The second one, that we serve God out of gratitude, we serve God out of joy, that's the motivation. See, you can serve God, God out of guilt, or legalism, or pride, or you can serve God out of joy, humility, and thankfulness. Because here's the bottom line, guys. Can you be doing the same activity and have a different motivation? So you can be doing the outward action, but doing it with the wrong motivation. And there's a lot of people that operate under this legalistic mindset where they are motivated to worship, serve, praise, live for God only so that God will bless them and they try to keep brownie points with God. That's their, they, they want God to obligate them. Or they want God to be obligated to, to bless them. Okay, so that's a ditch. Okay? What's the other ditch? I'm just going to give in to sin. It's not worth it. I'm going to be really, really sinful because it doesn't pay. Now, Solomon's not saying, you know, just be a little bit wicked. It's okay to be a little bit wicked. It's okay to be a little bit righteous. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these two ditches. So what's the answer to avoiding these two ditches? What's the answer? Verse 18, what does he say? It is good. So what's the good thing? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So in verse 18, the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So when you live in this frustrating world of perplexities, when you see things happening that you don't quite understand, when you're puzzled, when you have conundrums, when, when things just kind of look a little weird, you worship and live in fear of God. In other words, instead of arrogant legalism that attempts to get God to bless you by your works, Live in dependent humility on Him. Instead of flagrant license that just gives up and plunges into major sin, live in joyful obedience to Him. So, we are going to talk tonight about this whole thing of growing in godliness, pursuing holiness, doing it with the right motivation is not the goal of the Christian life to be more like Jesus. Is not the goal of the Christian life to grow in your faith, to be further along today than you were a month ago as far as your relationship with Christ, to grow, to, to, to mature, is not, not what, what we need to do. So the Bible calls this, or the theological word for this, is progressive sanctification, Okay? Progressive sanctification. Progressive in the sense that it's a process, progress we make in the Christian life 
in its sanctification, the fact that we pursue holiness and grow to be more like Jesus. I've drawn this before, but I'll draw it again. Pretend like your life is on this graph. So this is, this is where, when you were saved, and this is up here is when you get to heaven. Either you die and go to heaven or Jesus comes back. But here's the moment of your salvation. There's the moment of your death or Jesus comes back. Is your growth in godliness, does it look like a straight line straight up? Anybody's life look like that? No. What does our life look like? You got peaks, you got valleys, you got times of extreme growth. But if you were to plot the trajectory of your entire life, it's going to show incremental upward growth in godliness. If you flatlined and don't have any growth at all, it's probably evidence that this never happened over here. So we are called to progressively, sometimes slowly, sometimes painstakingly, live a life of growing to be more like Jesus. This is called progressive sanctification. So what I want to do is show you a lot of verses in the New Testament that teach this truth. Okay? So what are the two ditches? Ditch number one is legalism. Ditch number two is license. What's the biblical answer? Neither one of those ditches. It's progressive holiness where we serve God, we grow in grace, we fear God out of joy, out of humility, out of thankfulness. Not to get God obligated to bless us and we don't want to get on the other ditch of just living our lives full of sin. So let's go to the New Testament here and look at some of these passages. Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I wish I had a long time to preach on this passage of Scripture. You have a responsibility to put to death the deeds of the body. Now, who helps you do that? The Spirit. So daily, you are to be asking the Holy Spirit to help you put to death. What does put to death mean? Kill, not just kind of punch or poke. Sin is a ruthless enemy that's going to try to devour you. And you can't mess around with it, so you need to kill it all the time through the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be killing sin. John Owen said this, you need either to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present, this is more positive, present your bodies as opposed to putting to death. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so we've got this whole idea of having your mind transformed, growing in grace having your mind filled with the Scripture so you can understand God's will. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body and how you live. Live as a living sacrifice. Glorify God in your body. Put to death the deeds of the body. All these issues related to growing in our faith. Okay, 2 Corinthians 6, 17 through chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you should be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement 
of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Cleanse ourselves of defilements. Put to death the deeds of the body. Renew your mind. This is all this whole growing in godliness that is the healthy biblical way that we are to, to grow to be more like Christ. Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It does not say work for your salvation. It says work it out. Live in the fear of the Lord. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Get rid of sin. Put to death the deeds of the body. Cleanse yourself of all defilements. Pursue holiness. Have your mind renewed. Glorify God with your body. 1 Peter 1, 15-16 But as He who has called you is holy... So you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are to pursue holiness as a command. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father It's not in him. So this first section, verses 15 through 18, he he struggles with the conundrum. Why do righteous people die early and wicked people live long? And if if you're messed up with that, he says you can go to two different extremes. You can look at that and say, well... I must really work hard in order to God to obligate, you know, in order to get God obligated to extend my life and bless me. So I better work hard so something bad doesn't happen to me. Or the other ditch is, man, it doesn't pay because the wicked are getting away with it. I might as well join the wicked and just go send my heart out because in the grand scheme of things it doesn't matter. And he says, No, both of those are ditches. The, the answer is to fear the Lord. You walk in fearing the Lord. You walk in holiness. You serve God. You fear God. You grow in grace out of joy and out of thankfulness for His salvation, not to kind of obligate God to, to bless you. Okay? So that's the first section. Part two, he gives some proverbs about sin. Okay? Three proverbs about sin, which are interesting. Verse 19, Proverbs 1, the first proverb. Wisdom gives strength to the wise much more than ten rulers who are in a city. So wisdom gives strength to not fall into either of these sinful ditches. Ten rulers of a city. Back then, the rulers of a city would provide protection. They would provide um, political help. They would summon an army. And so he's saying, listen, it's better to have wisdom than to have these 10 guys there to summon an army or to be the leaders of the city. Um, So if you don't want to fall into either one of these ditches, if you don't want to fall into the ditch of legalism and you don't want to fall into the ditch of license, you must pray for wisdom because wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. When was the last time you prayed for wisdom? 
in relation to walking a holiness and walking in holiness. Let me give you guys some scriptures here on asking and praying for wisdom. Proverbs 2, 2-7. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. Do you see how walking in integrity and wisdom work together in that passage of Scripture? If you're walking in integrity, praying for wisdom, God's your shield. So pray for wisdom to walk in integrity. Pray for wisdom to not fall into these two ditches. Pray for wisdom on how you're going to handle the temptations in your life. Proverbs 17:24 says, The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. You're looking everywhere else but for wisdom as a fool. But if you're a wise man, you're looking, you're looking straight in the, in, the, in the face of wisdom. Paul, when he was praying for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 16-17, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What's your prayer, Paul? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul's praying that they would have wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.9, it's another prayer of Paul. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. What are, we, what are you praying for, Paul? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then James 1.5, a famous passage, If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. You want to grow in godliness? You want to not get into legalism or get into license? You want to live a life that pleases God? Pray for wisdom. Ask God to give you strength and wisdom. Okay, so that's proverb number one. Proverb number two, the reality of total depravity. It kind of rhymes a little bit. What does he say there? Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Is there a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins? What's the answer? No. Paul quotes this in Romans 3. What does Paul say in Romans 3, 10 through 12? As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Most scholars probably believe that that Paul is quoting there from Ecclesiastes when he's giving this definition of total depravity, that there's nobody that seeks God, nobody's righteous, we've all turned aside. Were we born this way? Yes, okay, good. I'm seeing your heads. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So you are, when you come out of your mother's womb, you're doomed from the tomb. I mean, you're, you're doomed from the womb to the tomb because of sin. You are a sinner by nature, okay? In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 8, 7 through 8, for the mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Definitions of sin here. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let's just do a really fun, encouraging, lighthearted, good exercise here and list all the characteristics of sin that Paul has given us in these passages of Scripture. So in Romans chapter 3, he tells us that no one is righteous. So no one is righteous. No one is good. No one seeks God. Let's just say we're worthless. Okay, that's, that's real encouraging, Paul. We were conceived in sin, so we're sinful from conception because we've inherited it from Adam and Eve. We have deceitful hearts. We have hostile minds against God. We are dead in sin. Going into Ephesians here, we're dead in sin. We are, what else does he say there? We're enslaved to Satan. We are passions of the flesh. He also says we once walked following the course of the world. We we follow the world. And the last one here, we are children of wrath. And what does he say? Like the rest of mankind. Now, obviously, this does not describe a believer because we've been changed in salvation, but a lost, this describes a lost person. Do we have a high view of man or do we have a biblical view of man? What does our culture tell us? Our culture says people are basically inherently good. The Bible says people are inherently bad and need salvation. And so we need to understand where we've come from and seen how great our salvation is that God has pulled us out of that. He's saved us and he's given us new life in Christ. But it reminds us of how people around us that don't have Christ really are in captivity to all of these things. And that's what he's saying here. He says in verse 20, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So this is the total depravity. So let me give you a definition of total depravity. Because human beings are dead in sin and enslaved in the bondage to sin, every part of their being has been affected by the fall. This does not mean that humans are as sinful as they could be, but it does mean that sin has radically corrupted their mind, heart, and will. As a result, humans are incapable of doing anything good for pleasing God and cannot in and of themselves choose positively for Christ because they are dead in sin. So you need wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Understand total depravity. And then proverb number three, just in case you didn't think total depravity was true, in your times of weakness, you've cursed others and reacted sinfully. How many of you, when you were cut off in traffic, in frustration, called that person something that you thought you'd never come out of your mouth? And your wife looks at you and said, I didn't know you used that kind of language. Or you look at your wife and said, I didn't know you used that kind of language. No, I'm just I'm just <laughs> When you lost your temper and you cursed someone what does he say there in verse 21 and 22 
Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Maybe you may overhear people you know, cussing about you behind your back. Verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I don't know why he put that in there. It's just in there to kind of remind us that be careful because um, the reason, and basically what he's saying is the reason we sin is because of our nature as sinners. Even when we're saved, we have to battle the flesh. Let me give you a verse on that that's very helpful of what's going on in your heart and mind even right now. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What's going on in your heart right now? You have the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, who's living inside you? The Holy Spirit. And He is leading and guiding and moving you to pursue holiness. What else is happening inside you? Your sin. Now, when you become a Christian, does God just eradicate and get rid of all your sin when you never sin again? No, you still have to battle. And what does it say here? They're opposed to each other. They're battling each other. So it's a constant battle in your heart for holiness because your flesh is going to want to fight against the Holy Spirit in you and you're always going to be struggling. So don't ever let anybody tell you the Christian life is not a struggle or a spiritual battle. I told you the story before. One time I was flipping through the channels, and I think it was one of those channels you shouldn't watch. Um, not like those channels. Like I'm talking like, <laughs> I'm talking like, like the, the church channel or one of those high, like word network, one of the televangelist channels. And Jesse Duplantis, he's a, um, the raging Cajun. He's, a, he's like a Cajun, I don't know, he's got white flaming hair and he's got that Cajun accent. And, he's, um, and, he, and he was talking, and here's what he said. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll imitate him because I like imitating him. He's like, I've got that point. Well, I just don't sin anymore. I just, when the devil come to me, I just say, devil, get away. I do not sin anymore. I feel sorry for you people out there that still sin. I've got the point where I do not sin. If you sin, there's something wrong with you. I just tell the devil, get away, he get away, and I do not sin. And I'm thinking there, you're a liar. Because <laughs> what does 1 John, it's not on your sheet there, but what does 1 John say? 1 John 1.8, I think is where it is. Yeah, what is 1 John 1.8? It says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. So he was basically shaming his audience for sinning because he'd reached a point where he's never sinned before or he got to the point where he never sins. Anybody here reach that point? You have to redefine what sin is because you can sin in your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. Now he may have gotten to the point where he doesn't sin like in action maybe, but you're still going to sin in your thought life. And so anyway, what... Solomon here is giving us a realistic view of this battle with sin and that there's always going to be this struggle, okay? Now, let's get to part three. He's going to try to, he's still trying to figure out, he's trying to understand the perplexities of life and realizes that there are major limitations to what he's able to understand. He's tried to be wise. He's tried to wonder what's going on. Look at what he says in verse 23. All this I've tested by wisdom. And I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? What's he saying there? 
I really tried hard to figure this stuff out. And it's deep. And it's far. Deep and wide, deep and wide. It's like an ocean. Okay, so when you're standing on the ocean and you're looking out at the ocean and you look out as far as you can see, how far does the ocean go? It goes far. If you were to take a submersible and go out to the bottom of the ocean, how deep are you going to get? That says, that's the metaphor here. Man, it's way out there. I can't understand it. It's way deep. And so basically, he's left scratching his head saying, I'm the smartest man on earth. The God's blessed me with, with wisdom, and I'm at a loss. I have no idea. My finite mind has limitations. So you need to live with your limitations. There are sometimes you look at things that happen in life and all you can do is scratch your head and say, I have no idea what's going on. God, I don't understand. You look, I looked at my friend Shane who died early and I said, God, I don't understand. I mean, he was, he was my friend. He was going to be a pastor. He had just married a young wife. He'd had a new baby. He had his whole world ahead of him. Why did he die in a car wreck and his baby died? Why? I don't know. We don't have the answers. And the Bible tells us that, doesn't it? Isaiah 55, 8-9. This is God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. At the end of the day, what's all you can say? God, I can't think. I, I, I don't... There's, I'm not even in the same league as you, God. and I'm, I, I can't even think the way you think, God. Your thoughts are so high. Your ways are so high. You're not obligated to give me any information. And so I'm just going to trust that you know what you're doing and I may never have the answer. It's deep and wide. <laughs> Paul says it this way in Romans 11. He says basically the same thing. Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Anybody want to stand up and say that? Who's been His counselor? Anybody given God advice? Mm, no, I shouldn't ask that question. Anybody been successful in giving God advice? Who has given God a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So Solomon says, man, I tried to figure this stuff out. I didn't get anywhere. It's too deep. And there's nothing wrong with that. What's our problem? We want to have all the answers. And we want to have the answers right now. Will God sometimes give us the answers? Yes. Will sometimes God not give us the answers? Yes. Is God obligated to give us the answers? No. Will God be gracious and sometimes give us the answers? Would you, let me just ask you a question. Would you want to know, that we were talking about this the other day in men's study, weren't we, Troy? You asked, would you want to know the day that Christ came back? Because if you put it on a calendar, what would everybody in this room do? Live however you want until two hours before he came back and then you get your life right. How many, body, how many here want to know how your life is mapped out? We'd like to say, yeah, I'd like to know how my life... Like some of us say, I really want to know where my life's going to be mapped out. I want to see the movie. I mean, I want to be able to like DVR it and maybe skip past the parts I don't like, but I want to get to the end. Do we really? Because in the words of Jack Nicholson, what would he say? You can't handle the truth. I mean, you couldn't handle the truth. If God, if God, if God showed that to you, you, you probably wouldn't be able to handle what He showed you. So God is gracious in unfolding it in bits and pieces that you can't see because if He gave it to you all at once, you would not handle the truth and you may like die in a puddle. 
because it's too overwhelming. So if God not giving you the information is actually an act of grace because He knows you can't handle it. He gives you what you can handle and He unfolds it through His grace. And it also allows you to be more dependent upon Him because if you knew the whole story, what would you do? I know what's going to happen. I'm going to live however I want. Keeping you in the dark sometimes, God does that so you walk by faith, not by sight. Okay? Then he's going to go on another quest. So this final section here, he goes on um, a diligent search to find answers to the perplexities of life. And we've seen Solomon does this before. He, because he's a man of wisdom, he tries to search things out. He tries to investigate. And that's what he does. Look at what it says there in verse 25. I turn my heart to know, to search out, to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that's madness. And so what is he saying here? He seeks to know, to search out, to seek wisdom and folly. He really wants to figure these things out and know why we live in a world with such mystery. And what does he find out? There's four things he finds out. And the first one is like, what? kind of hits you. It kind of seems like it's out of place. First thing he found out was an adulteress or evil woman is a trap that ensnares many men. That's kind of out of the blue, but it's important. What does he say there? Verse 26, I find something more bitter than death. What's more bitter than death, Solomon? The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Who's this woman that's captivating and capturing men and like a snare? Well, we have to go back to Proverbs to see who this woman is. Okay, Proverbs 7 and Proverbs 9 talk about the adulterous woman, the, the, the loose woman, the, the ungodly, promiscuous prostitute, whatever you want to call her. Proverbs 7, 22 through 27. It's interesting because the, the, the writer of Proverbs is watching this young man go to the house of the prostitute, and he's, he's like unfolding what it looks like to him from a distance. And so here's what he says. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces his liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she's laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. What's the warning he's saying? Young men, or any man, any age, don't go there. It may look enticing, it may look alluring, it may look captivating, but it's going to lead you to the pit. It's going to be a snare. It's going to entrap you. It's going to enslave you. It's going to cause you major heartache. Don't even go near the door of her house. Proverbs chapter 9, 13 through 18, says this, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here and say to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. What's she saying to him? Come drink water from a different well. 
come have fun in secret. Let's just put it in plain vernacular. You're not getting what you need from your wife, so come in and get it from me. I will give you pleasure. And what does it say? It leads straight to Sheol, to the depths. And notice what Solomon says there. He says this, He who pleases God, this is at the end of verse 26, He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, this does not necessarily have to be adultery. It does not have to be sexual promiscuity. It can be any addictive behavior that entraps and snares you. It could be pornography. It could be gambling. It could be materialism. It could be drugs and alcohol. Anything that enslaves or ensnares or traps you. But what pleases God? He who pleases God escapes. So, He's giving a warning here saying, look, look, there is, because we're sinners by nature, there's a temptation for men to go find pleasure in other women. And that is only going to lead to addiction and pain and suffering. It's not going to be good. So when he went to search out wisdom, that's one of the things he found out is that you can become enslaved to sinful addictions because sin will lead you down that path. Okay, that's ditch number one, wasn't it? What was ditch number one? All this stuff's happening. I might as well just like all my friends are having affairs and they don't get caught. Here I am being faithful to my wife and, and it's not fun anymore. And so I might as well just go have an affair too because my friends aren't, aren't getting caught. Might as well just plunge into sin because everybody around me is having fun and, and I'm towing the line and, and I'm not, you know, you can start playing that game in your head. That's the ditch. And Solomon says, I've seen men go down that ditch and it leads straight to the pit. Here's finding number two. I really can't find an answer to all this. Look at verse 27. Behold, this is what I found out, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. I still, ha- I don't still have an answer to this. I'm seeing ditches that people are walking into, I'm seeing sinful behavior, but to really fully understand all this perplexities, I still can't figure it out. And then finding number three, all in all, there are very few righteous people in this world. When it comes down to it, there's not really a lot of righteous people in this world. That's what he says in verse 28. One man among a thousand I've found, but a woman among all these I've not found. Now, he's not being sexist here saying that women are sinful and men are not. It's just an expression. Out of a thousand men... He found one that was righteous. Now, that's a generality, but from his perspective, he's basically saying, look, when I look around at the world, when I look around at these perplexities, when I look around at people going off in all these ditches, at the end of the day, I really can't find a true, solid Christian that I can trust. And sometimes we feel that way. I'm not saying it's always absolutely true in every single case. From his perspective, that's what he's seeing. But then the final, the final um, finding is really what wraps everything up. He finally pretty much kind of comes to an answer, the best he can understand. Here's the finding. Because of the fall, all humans are wicked schemers. Verse 29, he sums it all up. See, this alone I found. What did he find? He found it out. This is the one thing he found out. God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. Okay? This is really the climax to all of his questions. So here's the overwhelming answer to the mystery. 
The overwhelming reality of why there's mystery and sin and complexities is really because Adam brought sin into the world and people act out of their sinful natures. What does he say there? God made man upright. Did not God create man in his own image? In Genesis chapter 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God made man upright. God made man in his own image. God made Adam and Eve not perfect. I challenge you on that. Were they perfect? Because if they were perfect, they would not have sinned. They were upright in the sense that they were innocent, they hadn't sinned yet, but they had the ability to sin, and they did sin. And and what happened? They sinned, and what did he find out? As a result of Adam and Eve, humans have sought out many schemes. That's an interesting way of putting it. They've sought out many schemes. So what are the schemes that humans have sought out? Let me just trace like the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Okay, the schemes of men. The first scheme was what? I want to be like God. That was scheme number one. That was the fall. Genesis 3, 5 through 6. For God knows, this is the serpent speaking, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like, be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Men were created upright. They devised many schemes. What was the first scheme of Adam and Eve? I want to be like God. I don't trust God. God must not be good. God must be holding something from me. And so I want to be like God. So I will disobey God and I will eat the fruit. That's the scheme number one. Second scheme. People wanted to control their own destiny by building cities, art, and technology. Cain went off and started these pretty much wicked cities. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his own son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahuajoel, and Mahuajoel fathered Methushoel, and Methushoel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah, Adab or Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. She was the forger. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Now, it doesn't really say anything negative about what they did here. But did you notice something about Lamech? What did Lamech do? He took two wives. What was the plan? One man, one woman. He says, I don't care about God's plan for marriage. I'm taking two wives. So this scheme here from the line of Cain, Cain was the wicked line, came polygamy and the wickedness of these cities. Okay? Which led to Genesis chapter 6. The third scheme was people had become so wicked that God destroyed the earth with a flood. Now, here's the most telling verse in the entire Bible about sin. Genesis 6, 5, right before the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How bad did it have to be 
so bad that he flooded the earth. Every single solitary person on planet earth was living to the maximum potential of their sin. Now think about a world like that. There probably wasn't as many people in the world as there are now, obviously. But think if 7 billion people acted that way right now, we would have mass chaos. It's bad enough as it is because of sin, but it was so bad here that God had to destroy them with the flood. What's the fourth scheme? Well, after the flood, people wanted to make a name for themselves, so they built a tower to heaven. Genesis 11, 4 through 9. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city. Let me look at this little tiny tower that they're trying to make. The Lord comes down to see this little tower. What is that down there? Oh, we're making this huge tower. Which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, and they have all one language, and this is, the one, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from every, from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. That's the plain of Shinar. That is where Babylon was. That's the exact spot where King Nebuchadnezzar set up the big um, statue for people to worship him. Okay? So schemes. We could go on and on in the Bible about how men want to do their own thing because of sin. They're schemers. Isaiah 53.6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So when we see these perplexities and weird things going on, we shouldn't blame God. Sinful people are acting out of the sinful nature of their hearts, and they're going down all these ditches. They're scheming. And so the fundamental answer as to why there are mysteries and conundrums and complexities and why people die young and why, why, why we live in a chaotic world, the answer is because Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin into the world, and people ever since then are scheming. Until Christ comes back and makes it right, people are always going to be scheming. So, here's the big question for us tonight. Okay, if that's true, how do we respond? How do we respond to this? Can we control it? We can control what we can control. Wrong answer number one. Remember the wrong answer number one? Well, we can try really hard to be super righteous to earn God's blessing and obligate Him to prolong our lives. That's, that's a wrong answer, number one. That's what Jesus got onto the Pharisees for. In Matthew 23, uh, 23 through 24, whoops, let me go back. Um, oh, come on. There we go. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Trying to be religious, trying to do all these things, um, tithing, um, doing all these things to get God to bless you, but you're not really, your heart's far from, from God. Um, Paul says about the um, Israelites... 
in Romans 10, 2-4, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They're trying to be righteous in and of themselves. So wrong answer number one, when you see all these complexities, when you see a chaotic world, when you see bad things happening, wrong answer number one is, if I just do the right thing, God will keep me from all this stuff and he's obligated to bless me and nothing bad's ever going to happen to me. Is not that the prosperity gospel that you see sometimes preached on television? Minus the absence. Okay, minus the absence. Okay. So you'll hear some of these pastors and televangelists say, if you sow a seed into my ministry and you just have enough faith, you will have your breakthrough and nothing bad will ever happen to you. And, they can, and basically, they're, they're making God obligated to bless you if you just follow the formula. What happens if you follow the formula to the T and bad things still happen? You didn't have enough faith. And so some people's faith can be shaken because they've done everything right. Things don't go right. And who's the first person they blame? God. As opposed to stepping back and saying, is God obligated to bless me? Is God more concerned with, is God more concerned with my selfish desires or is God more concerned with me growing to be more like Jesus? And so God's going to ordain whatever he needs to ordain to get us on the path to look more like Christ, even if that means pain at times. So wrong answer number one is to try to be super righteous in order to get God to obligate you to to, to bless you with long life. Wrong answer number two, okay, if this is the way it works, I'm just going to give up on being righteous. I'm going to plunge headlong into sin because it appears everyone else is getting away with it. Both of those are wrong. So what's the answer? I think there are two answers to this question. Question or answer number one is this. Rest in the confidence that there will be a final judgment where the wicked will get what's coming to them. We want to see justice sometimes, don't we? We want to see wicked get what's coming to them. God will pay them back. It may not be every day, but there will come a day when the wicked will get what's coming to them. So it may appear like they're getting away with murder now, and it may appear like they're prospering. It may appear like there's nothing, consequences in their life, and they're just doing their merry thing. But listen to what Romans 2, 1 through 8 says. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them for yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The reason God's being kind is not so you keep on sinning so that you can repent. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
So when you see the wicked getting away with quote-unquote murder and never getting punished and never seeing the consequences and you get very frustrated and very discouraged and you want to see justice, just rest in the fact that there will be justice. It's not your job to mete it out. It's not your job to take vengeance. God will work it out in the end in His timing. Let God sort all that stuff out. It may be at the end of the age. It may not be ever during your lifetime. It may be at the end of the age. And then number two, trust God by living a life of humility, obedience, and joyful thankfulness for what He has done for us in the gospel. What has God done for us in the gospel? Let's just look at a few scriptures here that talk about what God has truly done for us in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do we have in the gospel of Christ? What have we been praying for? Pray for wisdom. We have wisdom in Christ. We have righteousness in Christ. We have sanctification in Christ. We can rest in the fact that in Christ, He's given us everything that we need to grow, to be godly. It's all found in Christ. Ephesians 4, 20-24. That's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We have true righteousness and holiness in Christ. So here's the bottom line, I think, of what this passage is teaching. We cannot control the perplexities that we may experience, but we can control how we respond to them. Will we go off into the ditch of legalism or into the ditch of license? Or will we center back to the gospel and grow in grace and godliness through the power of the Holy Spirit? 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the end of eternity. Amen. So now let's open it up tonight for questions, comments, clarifications, things that you want to respond to the perplexities of life that Solomon has struggled with as well. Lori. With karma? Is it like an Americanized karma or is it like true? Like, what's their, I guess I want to know, like, what are they saying about karma? Because there's true karma and dharma in, in like, the Hindu religion I know a little bit about from going to India. But I there's, think it's more the other, like, 
Like what goes around comes around. If I do good things, are they believers? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So they are wanting, so they use terminology. Like what are some of the terms they use? Like if I do good, God, you know, if I do good things, then good things are going to happen to me type thing. Karma will get him. <laughs> karma will get him. <laughs> what happens? Would you ever turn it back on them and say, well, do, are, do you ever fear that karma will get you? <laughs> that may be a good thing to say. Well, like, like, I mean, make it personal because if it happens to somebody else, it's not personal. Oh, karma will get them. But say, hey, have you done enough bad things that maybe karma will get back at you? And say, does that concern you? And then go into the gospel and say, you know, really, we ha- the Bible has a different answer for karma. You know, we're sinners and we face consequences for our sins, and the only way you can escape that is through a relationship with Christ. So I mean, you may make it personal, like, is, is the karma going to get you? Like, make them think about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Is that, I mean, that may be one way to do it. Or you could just also say, um, you just question them and say, what's your, you know, what's your basis for that? I mean, what, tell me a little bit more about your view of karma because it gets them talking like what's your view of karma i want to know a little bit more about this and where what's your basis for that where are you getting that and how do you know it's true and then that may get them to question why they believe it well maybe because i've always believed it and just say well if it did you ever yeah and just say did you ever think that maybe what you believe is not true and if it's not true it could be a really you know what and if it's not true or if it is true and karma gets you how, how do you get out of it how do you deal personally with getting out of the karma if it's going to get you? What's your answer for that? I mean, it gives them to some deep thinking because if they think through logically that viewpoint, it's going to have to personally come back to them at some point of how they're going to escape. Either they're going to have to try to be perfect, and then if they say, well, if I just really, really good, then say, well, how good is good enough? Can you really fully be good? And what happens if you slip up once? Is the karma police going to come? I mean, I'm just saying you have to challenge them on those things. Is that, is that helpful, Lori, or is it? Okay, okay. I can see Miss Lori acting that way. All right. I just all of a sudden had that Miami Sound Machine song by uh, Gloria Stefan. The rhythm is going to get you. The karma is going to get you. I don't know. I, just, I don't know why that's going Sorry. That went back to the 80s. Yes, Bob. Uh, I, the, I can't find it, but the idea of seek first the kingdom of God and he gives you mm-hmm. the desires of your heart. Um, his righteousness, yeah. Yeah, Matthew 6, 13, yeah, seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Okay. So, I mean, I feel like God does want to bless us. Yes. Okay. Yes, God, yes, God wants to bless us and God will bless us. We can't control how he does that and when he does that. Okay. As a general principle, as a general principle, it's not always true, righteous living brings about blessing. But not necessarily, yeah, and yeah, and, and, but not necessarily in the way that we may think about it. It may not be material or physical, um, but because God does reward faithfulness, I think, mm-hmm. and God does reward, but it may not be on this earth. It could be your reward is in heaven. But it can be on this earth, too. and it can be on this earth. It's just we want to we want to protect the fact that we don't <laughs> want to ever get to the point where we are making God obligated to bless us because of something that we. Like we're, we're try, like we don't want to treat God like a genie in the bottle, to where if we follow the steps, then He's got to do that. 
but I understand what you're saying. We don't also want to go on the other ditch of saying God never blesses or God never gives you the desires of That's your heart. Exactly. Yes, he does from time to time. We just need to be careful that we can't control that. And then there are times when you pray and, you, for, and, and God in his grace does often give you the desires of your heart if those desires are lined up with his desires. And then the, the other thing, too, uh, we are called the righteousness of God, mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. And I, maybe I'm wrong, and I'm not, I am, but I'm not trying to say something for Jesse Duplass. I think he's maybe thinking he's the righteousness of God because of Jesus Christ. Right. When God the Father looks at him, he sees no sin. Right. So maybe that's what he was saying. Uh, on which verse? Well, if we're called the righteousness of God, and we're the righteousness of God, and the Father God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin. He sees right. the righteousness of right. God. Right, based upon sin. Yes, yeah. And, and that's, that's biblically true. I just don't know if Solomon had the full picture at the time he was writing to have that full view. Yeah. And so when he's writing, he's writing from a limited perspective. We have the whole scripture and so but i agree we're all sinners don't get me wrong right 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 yeah and, and, and yeah and so he's he's kind of cynical but you have to kind of weigh ecclesiastes with the rest of what the bible teaches because he's got a limit like the purpose of ecclesiastes is he's trying to process all these perplexities and he doesn't have the whole story he doesn't have romans like we do so and it's not in conflict with the rest of the bible he just doesn't have the full picture the way we do yeah just and one more comment, if I may. Sure. Uh, you talked about that the the hair, uh, the Warden Empire. There. Oh yeah. yeah. And uh, to me, it's like sometimes I mean, people want to serve God in their own way, in their own time, in their own thing. And we know sometimes that doesn't work because Jonah. I mean, sure. He, yeah. He, that was he disobedience. Yeah. And so I'm thinking that guy in Warden, you know, I mean, he, I mean, he's, he's going to inherit that huge empire, and what a what a blessing he could have been as just a Christian ahead of the whole empire too. Mm-hmm. So I'm just throwing that it out. It could have been, yeah. But I think in his mind, he felt like that was God. it was God's will for him to go the other route. <laughs> but we don't know. Right? We don't know, yeah. We don't know. <laughs> so. Well, I think what I was trying to say, in, like Solomon didn't know about salvation yeah. yet. He didn't know the gift of Jesus Christ. But also, says Christians, when we look at things like your friend dying, you know, yes, it, there is evil in the world, but... As Christians, death is not a punishment. It's right. a blessing to go and be in the presence of right. God. And he's sparing him, right. you know, all the troubles and woes that we have on right. this earth. It's horrible for the ones left behind. Right. It's horrible for the wife that was left. You right. know, Man, you know, what am right. I supposed to be doing now? Right. And that's where the sadness is right. and the questioning, I think. Right. For the ones that get to go on and right. not have to worry about all the crud mm. that we have to go right. through every day. It's a blessing. It's yeah. a reward, yeah. I think. Yeah, and she and, and she was very much had that attitude. She was very thankful that he was a believer, that he was in heaven, and she had a really positive I mean she was I mean she was sorrowful, but she was also rejoicing that her baby was in heaven, her husband's in heaven, that he's getting to see Christ and I mean it was it was she was unusually joyful, which was very interesting. Yeah. Other questions? How much time do we have? Nine minutes. We can get out early if there's no questions. Oh, was there one back here? Well, Joe. Too, um, probably this whole thing that you know we're a wise father that disciplines children, and until you're God's child, you avoid a lot of discipline. I think because that's how He trains us. He trains us with positives, and when you do things wrong, or sometimes He sends things into your life that are. 
Yeah. So I think there's a, also that part of it too. You know, we got to look at each thing as an opportunity to learn from. Yeah. So it's not. Right. Yeah, and that's the hard thing is you never know really what. I mean, sometimes we don't know. All we know is we're going through a hard time. <laughs> and from our perspective, it's a hard time. But from God's perspective, He may be disciplining us, He may be shaping us. I've used this illustration before. When you think about the master potter, and everybody seen like a potter's wheel, like pottery? Okay. You have to like center the, the um, mud on the wheel to get it started. And so think about pottery for a moment. Is it, if you're a pot, what would you rather be, the potter or the, or the pot? What process does the pot go through? Squeezing, molding, shaping, spinning really, really fast. And then all of a sudden, like you're molded and you're shaped. And if you don't like this, it's, and then you're putting a kiln to where you're heated up. But then when you come out, you're exactly the way that the potter wanted you to come out. And the Bible often talks about God being a potter. And it's painful to get to where he wants you to be. But he's doing that for a purpose. And sometimes we don't want to be in the hands of the potter. We don't want to be molded and shaped. We want to just kind of spin around and kind of become a lump of goo. Would you rather be a lump of goo or what the potter wanted you to be? Some of us be like, well, I'd rather be a lump of goo because I don't have to go through all that. It may be painful. I may go through the kiln, but when you come out, you're exactly what God wanted you to be. Um, And so I think that if we keep that perspective that God's the potter, we're not. He's molding and shaping us for a purpose, and he knows the end. And the end is to get us to look more like Jesus. So whatever he's going to take us through, it's to get us to that point. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes you're blessed. Sometimes you're, you're going through hard times. But God, God is the potter and we're not. And we need to rest in the fact that he knows what he's doing, even though we may not know what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Sometimes we go off and do our own thing that makes us have problems too. Yeah. Yeah, we sling off the wheel and splatter on the side of the, the wall and it's like a real royal mess. So stay on the wheel. <laughs> stay in the hands of the potter. Well, and oddly enough, sometimes, I mean, I think we, we do see, like you said, in here that, um, that people that are not believers are blessed. Yeah. You know, they have, they have all the things that we think, wow, I'd like that. Mm-hmm. You know, the key to that is what are they really blessed with? Yeah. 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 Is it truly like a spiritual blessing or is it a worldly is it a is it a worldly thing yeah so bob you said you had one more yeah sure that's because we have time um, yeah we i think we got a few minutes here uh i see some of those illustrations of people you, you seem to say that they really didn't have any reason to die but i i see some reasons on each of them and that's like the guy who had the vineyard he refused to sell even though he was offered a better vineyard well, but that would have been going against his, in that culture, for him to do that would have been going against everything that was important to him, that the inheritance that he had as his birthright. And so it would have been an evil for him to sell to get something greater than to keep what was what God had blessed him with. Okay, so he was just, that was the custom of the day. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of a bribe, what he was doing. It was, and, and, who, and we don't know if Ahab would even, like Ahab could have, not come through on the bribe and he would have lost everything. He could have sold that and, and promised him something and said, oh, you know, I wasn't really, and then he would be out to lunch and not have any yeah, vineyard. I'm, I guess I'm taking the other deal. Maybe he was hoarding and holding on to something too tight that he shouldn't Yeah, have. I guess this, I don't, I, I guess I don't. the land of promise 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, the land was inherited through God. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was God's land that God had blessed him with, and so for him to give it up, it would be like he would be disobeying God to do that. Naboth, according to the, the custom of that day. Does that, does that make sense? Well, I'm thinking that, you know, too, that people shouldn't worship anything, too. I don't, you know, sure. Or, right. Or anything else. And so, that's, yeah. to me, that could be a reason, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And I so, don't, yeah, don't and think so, about it, so really know. So, yeah. so, like, something like that has happened to me a little bit. Somebody one time offered me $10,000 to leave a church. God has called me to preach and teach, and I wasn't called to leave yet. $10,000 at the time of leaving the church would have been a blessing, trust me. But it wasn't right thing for me to do so I had to turn that down so I think that with this guy it's the same idea this was his family's land the land was always a blessing when you got to go to the promised land they divided up by the 12 tribes yeah. and that's your land and even if it was sold or you became a slave in the year of Jubilee you got to go back to your land All yeah. was, it was all set it was like yeah. a reset button yeah. and every, on the 50th year everybody yeah. went back to their own thing yeah. and so we have, to, we have to look at it from mm-hmm. I think since this is yeah. Perspective on that. Yeah. All right. Oh, yes, Sue. Uh, man, that's yeah. Sometimes God does answer our questions for us. Yeah. Um, my husband passed away, and I was driving through town, and there was a prominent businessman that had retired, and now he's just around town drinking. And I go, Lord, why did you take him? You know, and he said to me, because he doesn't know me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just very humbled at that moment. And, Kind of like, mm. you know, better than I. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because I have my reasons. Yeah. 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 There's always, yeah, there's always hope. And that's why that one passage says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a moment. Why is God being kind to you when he shouldn't be? Because it's in hopes that you would repent. But what often do we do? We use it as an excuse to, oh, I got away with it. To keep doing it as opposed to repent. So. church culture sometimes you know as you're reading all the verses that said kill sin you know put put this away get this out of your life a lot of times we're not as active on that all of those are actions yeah and they're 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 harsh actions it's like if you're in a battle yeah if you put you know two people in there in a battle you got to fight or die and that's the idea here and i think in our church culture sometimes we're even too easy on stuff like that mm. you know with well, we want to be gracious. I know you struggle with that problem. Yeah. No, you idiot. Quit doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, and, and just think about the language we use. We don't, sometimes in church culture, hopefully not here, but a lot of church cultures, they don't even want to use the word sin. Yeah. They'll say, you know, I've got an issue. <laughs> They'll call it issue or a failure or a problem. Well, I understand what they're saying, but it's more than an issue. It's sin. And until we define it, until you define the enemy, how can you fight the enemy? I mean, it's an active process. Yeah. Is where I'm, I guess what I'm getting. Yeah, at. yeah, it is. It's very active, very active and proactive. It's not passive. So, well, guys, let's pr- let's pray because it's time for you to go get your kids out of stuff. So, Father, thank you for this um, lesson tonight. Lord, we do want to trust you. We want to um, just give ourselves to you, Lord. We may not know all the answers. We may not ever get answers. But one thing we do know is that you are Jesus, our righteousness. You're our hope. You're our strength and support, and you'll. Walk through us, through through it with us, whatever we go through. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody in this room, Lord, that may be going through a tough time right now, maybe facing a perplexity, facing a, a time of trial. That Father, you would just be very present in their life, be very um, 
powerful that you would surround them with your love and Lord that they would just know the peace that passes understanding Lord help us just to trust you fully that you are sovereign and we're not thank you that you're the potter and we're the clay and we want to remain in your hands we pray this in Jesus name amen